The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So on Tuesday, we debuted the first episode of season three of Dressed, and it was part one of our two-part series on the history of the relationship between fashion and film. And seeing how the Academy Awards were just this past Sunday, April and I thought it would be fun to learn a little bit more about the history of red carpet fashion at this star-studded event. But first, April, we promised we would share a little bit more about our recent first-ever red carpet experience. I mean, these events are no joke. I think you and I both found yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think that I made a reference um, to this in this week's earlier episode, but yeah, we were in hair and makeup for like five hours. It was intense, but we had a lovely time um, and our hair and makeup was done by a wonderful LA-based makeup and hair um, stylist, Melissa Betty. So you guys need hair and makeup in LA, check her out. But yeah, how did you feel, Kat? I I thought it was really fun. She did some quote-unquote contouring on me, which I've always wanted to try out. So I thought that was really fun. Um, I also just had a blast leading up to the event um, doing some vintage shopping for my outfit. I had a wonderful uh, experience at Off-Broadway here in New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico. The owner kind of just spent a couple hours with me trying on all these different types of dresses from different eras until I really settled on what I ended up wearing, which was this 1970s sparkly. It actually is a three-piece suit, but I took out the halter top that had a martini on it. (laughs) Oh, why? I didn't even see that part. (laughs) Oh, It just was a little much, but uh, I just opted for a, a basic black bodice underneath. But what about you? How did you go about picking your Oscar, well, your Oscar ensemble? <laughs> we we both went vintage. So um, I actually already had the dress in my closet that I wore, which was this late 60s, early 70s maxi dress with a polka dot op art print all over it. It was very, very cool. Um, but it needed a little bit of love. It had a little rip under the sleeve and it needed a new zipper in it. So I popped it on over to my favorite tailor here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, um, Natalie at the Tailoress, who does really, really wonderful work, and she specializes in um, vintage as well. So again, if you're in New York and need a good tailor, check out Natalie. Yeah, and something I thought was also really cool before we move on is uh, April had false eyelashes on her lower lid. I had on bright yellow eyeshadow and so... (laughs) many false lashes. And my lashes are naturally really long, but but yeah, it was it was a lot. <laughs> it was great though. <laughs> 
And then as far as the experience itself goes, I mean, I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, It was a little cold. We all waited in line to go in our sequence onto the red carpet. I think the highlight of the experience for me was being... um, you know, just getting to walk the red carpet with April Callahan in front of the photographers. It was our first experience. It was really fun. And then at the end, the award for our category was given out, which we did not win, but it was really exciting to get to meet all the other women in our category. Yes, absolutely. It was so great to meet the lovely ladies of Fat Mascara, Naked Beauty, and Forever 35. So there you have it. That was our red carpet recap. But uh, we're here to talk about the Academy Awards, which were just this past Sunday. Right, Cass? Yes. Um, Now we get to talk about all things red carpet. I mean, this is arguably the Oscars is arguably the most highly anticipated of all red carpets uh, throughout the year. So, you know, we're here to talk about the Academy Awards. Yeah. And the Academy Awards um, is the annual event of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which is an organization established by, among others, American film magnate Louis B. Mayer, who was co-founder of the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios. And it was founded in 19. 27. And the Academy originally had about 36 members, and that included, quote-unquote, Hollywood royalty like Douglas Fairbanks and his wife at the time, Mary Pickford. And the Academy was really focused on promoting the Hollywood film industry at a time when it was not yet the nationally and internationally celebrated epicenter of film production that it is today. So the Academy Awards ceremony was instrumental in helping to establish the Hollywood film industry's reputation by celebrating its achievements across five branches. So, you know, giving awards to producers, actors, directors, writers, and technicians. And the first Academy Awards was held in 1929. And unlike today, it was not a broadcast event, but was rather a ticketed private dinner that was attended by 270 invited guests. And this was held at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel in L.A. This May will mark 91 years since the Academy Awards debuted on May 16th, 1929. And things, well, you could say that they've changed just a tad. Um, (laughs) Today, the Academy's membership has blossomed from 36 members to somewhere close to 1,000. And from its original five branches, it now has 17. Over 20 million people across the U.S., tune into the Oscars each year and has really become one of the most highly anticipated televised award shows of the season. And millions of us tune in just for the pre-show, I would argue. And we do that because we want to see our beloved movie stars walk the red carpet in what can only be described as high style. I mean, so central is celebrity dress to the Oscars that the pre-show is televised live so that viewers like April and I and all of our dress listeners can get up close views of their favorite celebrities' attires before they even take their seats. So talk show hosts interview stars about what they wear while others give a play-by-play in studio and, you know, on various platforms across the internet. I know I shared all of my favorites on Instagram throughout the night. And the revelry in all things Oscars fashion does not end here. Of course, in the days and weeks that follow, as in every year, um, ceremony and special edition magazines will be printed that are dedicated to this red carpet fashion. And of course, the internet will be aflame with talk of the best and worst dressed. You know, Cass, we've come a long way from that very first private dinner in 1929. And this has sparked our curiosity about just when did the Oscars become as much about fashion as film. 
Yeah, and I started to research this topic and kind of dive right in, but it was not long after I began uh, researching that I came across Bronwyn Cosgrave's fabulous book, Made for Each Other, Fashion the Academy Awards. And of course, I immediately reached out to her, and I am pleased to say she is joining us here today. Bronwyn, welcome to Dressed. Bronwyn, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. Welcome to Dressed. Thank you, Cassidy. I'm a huge fan of Dressed, so it's lovely to be with you. Thank you so much. And I have to say that, you know, we're here today because you wrote this fabulous book. And I'm sure you've done a lot of interviews about red carpet fashion because of it. You wrote Made for Each Other, Fashion in the Academy Awards. It's such an incredible book. You have this great incorporation of primary source materials, quotes, newspaper clippings. And then there, you know, you use these vivid descriptions to bring these nights and events to light. And I just want to read a little bit um, from what you wrote about for the first Academy Awards, which air, um, not aired because this is pre-television, but May 30th, 1929, for instance, you write, a corruption erupted on the stretch of Hollywood Boulevard outside the Roosevelt Hotel just before 8 p.m. As 270 film industry silent screen notables slipped from a convoy of luxury automobiles and into its cavernous event space, The Blossom Room. The Academy's prominent guests included Mary Pickford, Norma Shearer, NGM Starlets, Marion Davies, and Joan Crawford. Lean and tanned, these actresses lovelies looked as delicious as their sugar spun party favor, a waxed candy replica of Cedric Gibbon's Golden Academy Award trophy. So it's really these details that transport the reader back in time to that moment. So thank you. You must have had a wonderful time researching and writing this book. Well, thank you. I actually did not have a wonderful time. <laughs> because I understand because- that. <laughs> Because, you know, it's really it's really kind of you to notice the intricacy that actually went into the writing of this book. The book took me three years, and every single day of that was almost every single day. I mean, it was really one solid year of writing to the home stretch. Right. But for about two years, I scoured, honestly, the world for information about what women wore to the Oscars. And my book really is about women and what they went through to get dressed. And the great thing is, is that I did discover, you know, the bulk of that material in Los Angeles at the Margaret Herrick Library, which is an academy library. And a lot of it had never really been looked at. And I also went to visit the great designers. I went to the Dior archive and John Galliano actually called the archive and said, you know, help Bronwyn with what she, what she needs, whatever she needs. Giorgio Armani also took it really seriously and helped me. His team really helped me. I was very, very fortunate. There's a great dress. One of my favorite dresses in the book is what Michelle Yeoh wore when she was nominated for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And that dress was created from, you know, millions of Swarovski crystal (laughs) in Hong Kong by a a very gifted designer named Barney Chang. And I, I, what I had actually noticed in the process of researching this book and why it took so long was that I kind of discovered a paper trail of identifying dresses and actually looking at the designer, a designer attached to a dress in a caption, say, and and looking at that dress and thinking, that does not look like the work of 
say, Howard Greer, who was one of the early costume designers. And, you know, not all of the names turned up in, in indexes, for example, of dresses. So I really had to look hard and not believe what I saw in print. And that is something that I really noticed with fashion history is that there will be a sort of myth associated with something, say a design, and it's not always the case. And you really need to read between the lines and and go back to the primary source material. Right. And then to contextualize that all and, you know, and put it and write it into a, this story, this really captivating story. Yeah, it's not an easy feat, but you did it beautifully. Thank you. But oh, the one thing I will say about that is that you know, the book does also revolve around a celebration every year. So that really anchored the book, the actual ceremony where, you know, that was super fun. I watched every Oscar ceremony that had been telecast. That was the first thing that I did. So every Oscar ceremony that had been televised since, say, I think it was like 1954, certainly the mid 50s onwards, and really got to work with that material, which was the fun stuff, actually. you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but your book kind of starts with, you know, you pick an actress or a pair of actresses that are nominated for um, an Academy Award and you kind of lead up to the event in your book, um, telling, you know, contextualizing it within, you know, the films that they they produced and the experiences they had and then how they found their dress, which of course for a fashion historian like myself is just all of those details was just so wonderful. You mentioned Howard Greer a little bit. So we're talking about kind of the 1920s and 30s, that golden age of Hollywood. And that's really when the Academy Awards came into its own. And this is a time when, you know, we have these all-powerful studios reigning supreme over every element of the filmmaking process. You know, they controlled production, to distribution and their stars, images, and personas. And these studios have these huge in-house costume departments led by this bevy of, you know, legendary costume designers, including Edith Head. And these designers were tasked with producing not only the stars' on-screen looks for, you know, potentially dozens of films a year, but also their Academy Award gowns, which is something we do not really see today. So can you tell us about the costume designer's role in creating gowns for the Oscars during this period and maybe highlight one or two of your favorite examples. Well, it really started in the 1930s with um, designers like Travis Banton and Gilbert Adrian. So Travis Banton was the in-house costume designer at Paramount Pictures and Gilbert Adrian was the uh, costume designer in chief at MGM. And really what those designers were charged with by the studio bosses was creating a look for the women who represented the studios, say Norma Shearer at uh, MGM and say Carol Lombard at Paramount. And really that look that they ultimately would wear on the red carpet going to the Oscars was not really what the actress wanted to wear. Of course, she had to feel comfortable in it and it had to fit her body, but it that dress also had to represent somehow evoke the glamour of the studio. And you can really see that with Norma Shear, the early pictures of her. There's almost this glow around her. Travis Banton also worked, you know, a lot with shimmering crystals and beads. And they both really cut their designs to evoke the silhouettes of the Paris couture. They all looked to Paris. And there was a great rivalry, actually, 
uh, between Paris and Hollywood because you would have women going, say, on their summer vacations to Paris and bringing back dresses that they would want to, say, wear to a premiere of the Oscars. And they would, you know, be obliged to wear a dress conceived by a studio designer. Um, you fast forward to the 1950s and Edith Head, who was Travis Banton's assistant, really took Oscar dressing to the next level and kind of made it her kind of, you know, mission to dress as many women as she could. Edith Head was, you know, famously nominated and won several Oscars over the course of her career, a very long career that went from, I would say, probably the late 20s to to the 19, maybe 1970. She won an Academy Award for costuming um, the film The Sting. But she dressed women like Janet Lee and famously Grace Kelly when she won for The Country Girl in 1953. And, and Grace Kelly actually rewore, so recycled a dress, the dress that she wore. It was a blue satin dress. She had worn it to the premiere of uh, The Country Girl. I think it was the New York premiere. But Edith Head was, you know, it, up to the last minute until Grace Kelly got into her limo, was, you know, fussing over the cape that she wore. She wore like a wrapped style little cape around her shoulders and had her shoes sort of custom dyed to match the shade of blue of her dress and really worked in that way like contemporary stylists work. So going to every length that, you know, the stars looked perfect from every possible camera angle. I would say, you know, my, my favorites are, you know, the, the Edith headdress that Grace Kelly did wear. And also later on in the late 50s and, and early 60s, uh, it was probably late 50s, Helen Rose, a great costume designer at um, MGM, dressed Elizabeth Taylor to, to go to the Oscars. But you can go all the way up to the 70s and Bob Mackie, the great, great costume designer who worked on The Carol Burnett Show and Sonny and Cher, who had worked at the studios and assisting great designers like Jean-Louis. I think he had probably done some work with Edith Head. He came up against her anyway, was still carrying on that tradition. And if you look at, say, the outrageous costume that Cher wore, <laughs> um, that the Mohawk Indian-inspired costume that she wore when she was presenting the Best Supporting Actor trophy, that really was a costume crafted in the old Hollywood way, every single aspect, I think, except the wrap that she wore and her boots uh, was custom made. Oh, wow. And it, if our listeners haven't seen it, they just need to Google 1986 shared Oscars. Because yes. <laughs> it, it, you really have to see it. We're not really doing it justice. But there was an incredible amount of precision that actually went into that you know, there's this great story that the production designer of the Oscars, I think sometimes people forget how produced the ceremony is. You know, every little aspect of that ceremony is produced. And production designer that year who had done the stage set told me that when Cher went for the rehearsal of presenting um, the trophy, that she was conscious to measure you know, how tall the arch that she was walking through was so that her headdress would fit through it. She was like seven feet tall with heels, right? 
Yeah, she's she was wearing some high heels that night. But as she told me, she actually could walk in her heels. Cher actually advised me never to wear new shoes to the Oscars because your feet will kill you. And I have followed her uh, rule, actually. And it works. Yeah. And I mean, today, red carpet fashion is in my opinion, um, but I think I ha- I'm on to something here. It's really synonymous with the Academy Awards. I mean, I would argue that many people just tune in to the pre-shows to see what the ser- you know, what these actors and actresses. I mean, actors are now for many, many years have been making really wonderful statements themselves on the red carpet, which has um, kind of transformed that pre-show as well. But you know, I think people tune in just to see what their favorite celebrities are wearing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about when this shift happened? I mean, you just talked about actors having contracts with design houses. Joan Rivers' pre-carpet show might have had something to do with it. But when did it become this huge televised event just to see the red carpet? The pre-shows have existed since the Oscars were televised. The, the arrivals was, were always filmed. So you, Hollywood, you know, you would get a glimpse of who was arriving, be that Audrey Hepburn, Julie Andrews, uh, Lauren Bacall. And as a young girl, I grew up in the 70s watching that. And that's actually what made me completely fascinated uh, by about the Oscars. It wasn't the speeches. <laughs> it was actually those short little moments. And I think because it was so short, it left me wanting more. But then you you fast forward to the 90s. And as you say, it really was Joan Rivers. She was a great comedian. She was known for hosting The Tonight Show instead of Johnny Carson. When he couldn't do it, she often sat in for Johnny Carson. And she really started this this very acerbic pre-show. But it scared the wits, actually, out (laughs) of a lot of women like that would famously avoid her like Nicole Kidman and Penelope Cruz because she really, you know, just went for it and would just say what there was no filter, as as they say. But then, you know, basically E, I think, I think E entertainment uh, acquired Joan Rivers show. You'd have to do the math on that. But from there, it kind of just exploded. And I actually think it's too much. Um, you know, it by the time that that people sit through the pre-shows for say, what are they like three hours? You know, they 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 have kind of lost their appre- appreciation for any of the production values, and they've seen the dress. I mean, it used to be that you would l- watch, like, say, a snippet of what. An actress was wearing when they were arriving, and then you would get to see the entire dress as they were making their procession, see either on stage or up the stairs to accept their statuette. That was the traditional way. Now you get to see it from every angle on all the various television networks that have them. But, you know, that's progress, I would say. Yeah. And then, you know, what's interesting too is that you also, I think it was in the 90s or the nearing the end of the 90s, um, you write about how, you know, I guess Nicole Kidman and her relationship with Dior kind of laid the groundwork for what we have today in, in these um, brand partnerships. Is it Rooney Mara who has a relationship with Chanel or 
I think she's with Givenchy. Givenchy, you're right. Um, So these actresses and actors who are, you know, connected to a brand through advertising, um, but also are then wearing their gowns on the red carpet. Yeah. That Dior, for example, has had a longstanding relationship with Hollywood, particularly the Oscars. They've been crafting dresses for the red carpet since Marlene Dietrich Uh, went to the Oscars, I think it was like late 40s, early 50s, in a black Dior that Kristen Dior actually masterminded with her. Um, And since then, you know, Elizabeth Taylor went to the Oscars in 1961, Butterfield 8, wearing a Mark Bohan for Dior. Mark Bohan actually crafted a lot of dresses all through his career for the Oscars. When when brands like Chanel and and Valentino weren't really... uh, looking at it. I mean, Givenchy too always had a sort of presence because of Audrey Hepburn. But, you know, it really became corporatized in the 90s. I would say, you know, Giorgio Armani famously went into Hollywood in the late 80s with a woman named Wanda McDaniel, and she started scouting for men and women to wear Giorgio Armani's evening wear. And the red carpet really was targeted as a launch pad for Mr. Armani's evening wear. And it really went from there. I think, you know, the the great agencies, CAA, William Morris, you know, looked at these collaborations and thought, okay, there's money to me- be made in these dresses. And really today, these dresses and tuxedos and whatever else they're wearing really are almost like a veil behind which are a lot of corporate machinations, endorsement deals, appearances, commercials, you know, front row uh, obligations. And what, what actors really reap from them, from these relationships and contracts are alternate salaries that allow them to pick and choose their film and stage roles in a more discerning way. So they make a lot of money, those huge Louis Vuitton contracts, for example, Emma Stone, Michelle Williams, you know, today. And they've taken somewhat of the individuality out of it. But then you say, get a great stylist like Elizabeth Stewart or Elizabeth Saltzman, who can really do something special with a star who's under contract and maybe dress her kind of more imaginatively and a young designer for a ceremony where not as many people are watching, say, you know, the SAGs or the Globes. Um, You know, you see Kira Knightley, for example, wearing Erdem, Lucy Boynton does the same thing. Lesser known designers that don't have money to give a star a paycheck. So you, you have that going on. But I would really say that, that this kind of sterilization or corporatization and kind of f- f- way far fewer stunts on the red carpet, like Cher and, say, Bjork, the reaction to that is, is men wearing these phenomenal outfits, say, Billy Porter in the Christian Siriano tuxedo dress. Oh, I mean, that was a cultural moment. Right. I mean, it was incredible. And Chadwick Boseman went in a very ornate Givenchy beaded jacket and, you know, great, taking great risks and all the great color that's on men, uh, you know, and J- Jared Leto's Gucci flamboyance. Right. Thank God for that. <laughs> 
podcast. As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So what is the future of red carpet fashion? Where would you like to see it go, I guess I should say? Well, I think the future of red carpet fashion really is to to be determined by the future. The red carpet is always, say, a barometer, a bellwether for what is going on in society. And you see this kind of, you know, this gender bending uh, look on the red carpet of, say, Billy Porter. And that really is a reaction to what you see on TV. Pose is celebrating the trans community. You know, there's there's an uh, aspect of his character there, not just who Billy Porter is, but who he's portraying on screen. But also what's going on. I mean, there's a lot of protest in the air. So you will see that coming out. It could be a pin. It could be, you know, a, uh, a headpiece. It could be a collar. I mean, there are always coded messages on the red carpet as well. Bronwyn, thank you so much for being here. But before we go, I mean, you've you've mentioned talking to Cher. You've mentioned you've been uh, to the Oscars. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, um, what you do, where our listeners can find you in your work? You also have a fabulous podcast called uh, A Different Tweed that I am a huge fan of. Um, so tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thank you. Well, I am a fashion historian. Really, my formative professional experience was at British Vogue. I was the features editor there. I worked on the magazine for five years under the great Alexander Shulman. Um, and uh, really, from British Vogue, I went on to write books. I produced fashion documentaries. I produced the feature-length fashion documentary about um, Manola Blahnik and Kevin O'Quinn. I moved to New York um, seven years ago to live with my partner, whose name is John Sloss, and he is a film producer. He uh, was one of the producers of Green Book, which won the Oscar uh, last year for Best Picture. And I've been fortunate enough to go to the Oscars with John for many years now. And it really is such a privilege. And it's just taken me beyond the kind of 
realm of book writing where, yes, I have done the research, but you really don't understand the emotion and the kind of gravity, like the seriousness of of the event um, and really what it means to these people who struggle and work really to to achieve you know the moment of a nomination to be welcomed into this community of artists and designers and filmmakers and you know it really is a moment i it is something that money cannot buy from the comedy to the music to just the spontaneity of it all and of course the fashion which is one of the great aspects but it's not the only great aspect of the academy awards today Bronwyn, on that note, thank you so much. This was truly a pleasure. My pleasure, Cassidy. Thank you. Bronwyn, thank you for being with us today. You know, all of this red carpet cast, I am dying to hear what you thought about some of this year's festivities and what people were wearing. (laughs) Well, the Oscars itself was pretty fun. I have to say I am um, really liking them not having a host necessarily. Um, I think it helps it move along a little bit quicker and, and leads to some exciting moments. I have to say in regards to fashion, of course, some of my favorite moments were the sustainable fashion moments on the red carpet. Um, Joaquin Phoenix, who won um, Best Actor for his role in The Joker, which I have not seen yet. I'm not sure I will because I I know it's supposed to be really good, but I hear it's a little violent. But he's been winning all of the awards all season, and he made this pledge to wear the same suit or tuxedo, I should say, to every single event. So he's been wearing his Stella McCartney suit to all the award seasons. So he's re- he really set the bar high for sustainability and high fashion and had an incredibly powerful speech, I also would like to say, about you know, just taking care of each other and taking care of the earth. Um, You also had people like Penelope Cruz and Margot Robbie heading to the Chanel archives. Um, Elizabeth Banks and Jane Fonda both re-wore dresses from past award ceremonies. Fonda even brought the last item she ever bought, which was this red coat, onto the stage with her. That's (laughs) amazing. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? Um, Well, on that sustainability tip, I will just note that there are more than a few actresses that were wearing dresses that are made of Tencel, which is um, a a fiber that's created from, it's a cellulose fiber that's created from wood pulp. Um, And when they make Tencel, it's really cool because they have to break the wood pulp down, but all those chemicals and processes um, that result from that, they actually are able to reclaim it and reuse it so it doesn't go back into the environment. It's what's a closed loop system. So check out Tencel on the internet if you want to learn a little bit more about it, but there are more than a few actresses wearing Tencel on the red carpet. I have to say for one of my top picks, I got to go with my girl, Janelle Monet. Oh my gosh, that was my number one too. You know, she's my hometown girl. So, of course, if you haven't seen this dress, she was basically serving up some medieval chic, as I like to call it. Um, <laughs> she had on a, a, a silver tulle silk mesh dress that had this kind of a cowl or a hood, which to me was kind of a reference to like the Middle Ages and perhaps, you know, the chainmail that knights wore. But also I got a little bit of a Grace Jones vibe from it. Right. Yeah. Um, And it had a really amazing cutout in the back. Um, But the the thing that really sent this dress over the top is that it was covered in 168,000 crystals, which is... Tried by hand. Yeah. Yeah, it took 600 (laughs) hours to produce this dress. Apparently, 
four people had, from Ralph Lauren, who was the design house that created it for her, uh, four people had to carry the dress to her um, and to put it on because it was quite heavy, as one can imagine. Yeah, hands down, I think that was the the most beautiful dress on the red carpet. It was absolutely exceptional. And then, of course, she gave that powerful performance to open the Oscars in kind of her signet, what has now become her signature tuxedo look. So she wore like this Ralph Lauren tuxedo to open the Oscars. But I have to agree with what Bronwyn said earlier. Of course, there's, you know, such a wonderful place for sustainability on the red carpet and for making that powerful statement. There's also something to be said for the red carpet to be the stage for fashion as art. And, you know, the incredible hand craftsmanship, as April just mentioned, that goes into creating these one-of-a-kind custom pieces for all of us to appreciate and truly love. Um, I do have to say a couple more of my favorites was... I thought Rebel Wilson and Jason Wu is my runner-up to Janelle Monet. She was the embodiment of Hollywood glamour. She wore that figure-hugging gold Jason Wu gown. I thought she looked absolutely stunning. And then my other favorite was Sandy Powell, costume designer yes. for the Irishman. She was on my list too. Oscar. Yeah. Oscar winner for best. She won Oscar, I think, last year for her. Um, best costumes for the favorite. But she wore this suit by Ian Fraser Wallace, and she's been having celebrities sign it all uh, award season for charity. She's going to auction it off. So that was super cool. Yeah, and and the cause that they're auctioning off is quite interesting. Um, They're trying to save a cottage that belonged to Sandy's mentor who passed away in the 90s, Um, and they want to preserve the cottage and turn it into an artist's residency and incubator, which is very cool. So my other stunner, and she's a double stunner for me, basically was Cynthia Erivo, who walked the red carpet in that white Italian Versace dress. It was incredible and fit her like a glove. It had this white bustier type bodice with a, an asymmetrical shoulder strap like that ran across her chest. And then the rest of the bodice kind of had these diagonal insets of like mesh and also sequin. And the whole effect kind of like conveyed movement. And then all of that spilled out into this giant voluminous skirt that pooled out on the floor and it had a thigh high slit all the way up to there. Um, She looked amazing. And um, another really fun note, her nails that she had done, um, they had a star theme and it was, (laughs) yeah, they had stars all over them. And it was a specific reference to the movie, which she was double nominated for, Harriet, because apparently when Harriet Tubman was leading more than 70 people to freedom. She used the, often uses the North Star as her guiding point. So I thought that was like a really lovely touch that maybe not everybody would notice right away. So No, absolutely. I had no idea. I really love that. Uh, I think Lizzo at the Grammys had some amazing nail art going on too. I really love that that's becoming kind of this site for artistic experimentation and expression um, and also some hidden messages in there. It's very, very cool. Nails as the new accessory, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I have one more that I want to talk about because it definitely has a fashion history reference and that was Sandra O's dress, which was by Ellie Saab. And I know that our fellow fashion historian, um, Kate Strauss, made a recent comparison to um, to a 1930s, the Letty Linton dress on Instagram yesterday. But I want to take that back even a little bit further to the 1890s because (laughs) that silhouette was so 1890s to me. Um, The really 
big bouffant um, tulle sleeves that like went all the way down to the elbow. And the whole dress was like this peachy champagne color. It was really beautiful. And I happened to notice that a couple weeks ago, I posted an image of a House of Worth gown that's in the collection of the Kyoto Costume Institute. And it is very, very, very similar in silhouette. So, and that dates to 1894. You can check out our Instagram for that. So, I mean, those Gigo sleeves, I'm not going to lie, man, they have made a comeback with a vengeance. They are not my favorite silhouette in history because you also see them in like the 1830s. Um, they're a little bit lower um, on the shoulder, but those sleeves make repeated appearances and it often comes with that cinched in waist and that flared skirt. So it's so fascinating to me that they, they've they been around um, those last couple of word seasons. And I will actually say our guest today, Bronwyn, I think she was at the Vanity Fair party um, for Oscar night. And she had one big Gigo sleeve on her outfit. So <laughs> they're back for the vengeance. You, know your fashion history. <laughs> exactly. So. Well, I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. Please tune in on Tuesday for part two of our two-part episode on fashion and film. Until then, may you consider your favorite red carpet fashion moments next time you get dressed. If you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to our podcast. It really does go a long way in helping promote the show to new audiences, so we really appreciate it. And we, of course, love hearing from you, so please write to us with your own fashion history mystery requests to dressed at iheartmedia.com. Be sure and follow along on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us, of course, on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.